my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. Where size does matter. Oh, that's right. That was the tagline for Godzilla, wasn't this it? This podcast is the size of this building. Uh, I have a complaint that I need to make that in the original teaser trailer for Roland Emmerich's Godzilla, you see a giant foot come down, and he is not that size in the movie. I like to consider myself the Mayor Ebert of the podcasting <laughs> world. <laughs> Wait, that makes me the Siskel, the Toady? No! So we're talking about Roland Emmerich this week. And why? Because it's the summer, baby. It's blockbuster season, and who ruled the summer when we were teenagers? Roland Emmerich did. Man, what a time that was. I mean, it feels like Roland Emmerich's directorial career feels like an abandoned satellite. But the movies still keep coming out, though. Like, he still keeps pumping them. Yeah, they're B-movies now, though. Yeah, Moonfall, you will be surprised at how much it cost and how it kind of squeaked out into the world. That's a money laundering operation, surely. 100%. You see all those names in the credits? It's been a while since Roland Emmerich has caught the zeitgeist. And, I mean, for a time in the 90s, Independence Day, Stargate, Godzilla, even as late as Day After Tomorrow and 2012. Now, I was trying to remember, would people use Roland Emmerich as a negative connotation in the same way they used to discuss Michael Bay? Absolutely, they did. I can't remember specific examples. Well, definitely Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. (laughs) Yes, I I just remember. And Godzilla, the 1998 Godzilla, for years was like the go-to punching bag for like the movie where the Taco Bell promotion preceded the movie itself. The Mm. movie that was all hype and no substance. What do you mean? When Harry Knowles saw it at the giant stadium, Madison Square Garden? Yes. And the Taco Bell sitting right next to Muhammad Ali himself. <laughs> That's how oh, big it was. I'm going to need a bigger box. I can't do the accent for uh, yeah. in 2023, but if you were there, you remember that Taco Bell ad with the Chihuahua. Independence Day, though, when it came out, oh. like it's hard to overstate how big it was. Like It was, with Terminator 2, probably, and Mrs. Doubtfire, one of the movies I watched the most as a teenager. Oh, man, I watched it a lot, too, when I was a kid. Like had it on did VHS. They give them away with, like... Like Happy Meals, like how did I watch it so much? Did you have the lenticular VHS cover where where it? Had I the, believe I did, where you could see it like explode. You see the White House it? explode, yeah, yeah. And I remember my dad loved this movie. I loved watching it, and I think it also captured that zeitgeist in that it had Jeff Goldblum, who I loved in Jurassic Park. We'll get back to that, and it also had. Big Willie, who I loved watching every day in Fresh Prince. Well, star-making vehicle for mm-hmm. him. And so Roland Emmerich, as he has been forgotten to like the sands of time, basically, we're bringing him back. We're digging him back up. And I was shocked, re- logging some reviews this week, and I saw that Will recently went to the theater and watched a Roland Emmerich film that many people consider a classic, and he had perhaps a negative reaction to it. Well, in the city of Toronto, where I call my home, I'm hesitant to even say this because I don't want you fuckers. No, don't don't name the cinema. <laughs> like, I don't want you gentrifying it, but there is a place in Toronto where they, they play 35 millimeter prints. Randomly. S- seemingly at random. Yeah. Just the most bizarre programming choices. And one week it was it was Stargate, and I thought... Well, you know, I, you know, it must be good, right? People talk about it so fondly. I didn't think it must be good, but it's like, you know, if there's a free night and a 35 millimeter print, I'll think, boy, I bet a studio movie from the 90s looks really good on shimmering celluloid. And it did. 
Now, Stargate was never a movie I liked. And I think I watched it probably buying that two-disc DVD set. And I got to say, they keep releasing Stargate. There was a new edition this week. We talked about it on the Bay Street Video Podcast. Oh, wow. So this film has legs. Okay. Now, I only watched this movie two weeks ago, but I'm already forgetting the plot. Like, so the plot is, wait, who James is James Spader. Yes. And is a nerdy scientist who's brought in because they found he, a he Stargate. Aliens, aliens built the pyramid. Yes. And he's got a whole theory. And they reveal they did. That's right. So he and like General Kurt Russell or whatever, mm. who's who's just getting over the trying to get over the death of his son. They walk through the Stargate and spend an hour doing nothing. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, Boring. I think people don't remember this about Star. They Boring. do nothing for an hour. Nothing. They're just in the desert and you're just just you know, orange sheen, mm-hmm. you know, as they're sitting around. But Stargate huge hit led to multiple TV series. That I think people remember more fondly than the actual movie. Now, if we can get back to why are we doing this episode now, in addition to the fact that it's summer, I wanted to talk about Roland Emmerich because a, he's sort of been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Independence Day, he, he, like huge. <laughs> he's the Norman Torog of our day. <laughs> yeah. Huge movie at the time. But, but it represents a, a kind of style, a mode of blockbuster filmmaking that was once dominant and now has been completely subsumed by superhero stuff. And and secondly, I don't hear anybody in like... Cine- the vulgar auteurist yeah. Roland Emmerich? Yeah, I don't hear any cinephiles making a claim for him. Like Michael Bay has his fans and defenders, the people who think he's doing really cool things with editing and the camera. You know, Tony Scott, people like that. Nobody, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong... I don't hear people making the case that Roland Emmerich's a great auteur. Now, when I was a teenager and I loved Independence Day so much, I probably held Roland Emmerich in some esteem because I liked Independence Day so much. And I remember watching his other movies and going, I do not like these as much as Independence Day. I mean, and looking at his career, though, he does have an interesting one, right? Where it's like he comes from Germany. His first thesis film, he makes into a feature that somehow cost a million dollars. And then he, you know, does. And you th- watch that film. What's it called? Uh, it's called The Noah's Ark Principle. And I will say it's interesting in the sense that it, it's Emmerich kind of doing the stuff that he would continue to do using miniatures. He's clearly a big fan of science fiction, but like stripped of, listen, any kind of humor or fun. So it, to be very generous, almost feels like George Lucas's THX 1138, like people running around on a 2001 spaceship, but it's clearly shot like in the back room at a university and that a lot of close-ups of like computer screens and diagrams. Everyone is speaking wild techno babble. So almost as a piece of experimental art, it's more interesting than what he's attempting to do, which is do kind of a proto-disaster movie. Mm -hmm. But clearly it got in front of some people that were impressed enough by it that he made two more films. He did one called Making Contact, which is, I mean, can we say that perhaps Roland Emmerich is inspired by a little man named Steven Spielberg? Yeah, I think that'll come up when we start talking about Independence Day for sure. But we could also talk about it when he made a little film that maybe was inspired perhaps by Poltergeist called Ghost Chase. Yeah, so this is from 1987. I think, is it technically a German production? It's I believe English. it's a German production shot in English. And it's the adventures of Rusty from European Vacation and another guy who are young, cool kids in Hollywood who want to make a movie. Now, to speak of this movie p- positively, 
it does have those light vibes of people who are not American coming to America to make a you know, film that they recognize and that they like. Yeah. So as I was watching this movie, I thought, man, if Claudio Fergasso made this movie, if Bruno Mattei made this movie. Well, it has a bonkers plot, which is like a bunch of horror filmmakers. One of their puppets gets possessed by like the spirit of a butler. Yeah. And it's a horrifying Yoda-like thing. Oh, I, I love the puppet stuff in this movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But the big issue with this one is nothing happens like until the climax. I th- Yeah. I think this movie has like 10 or 15 pretty good minutes mm-hmm. Of like weird comedy horror stuff. Yeah. Like there are moments in this movie where he f- it feels more derivative of Sam Raimi than. Mm. Well, like they go to like a old manor that's about to be blown up and they fight like a knight's armor. Like that's fun. There's yeah. like colored lights, the way that all 80s movies looked at this time. But yeah, all the plot stuff of just them in Hollywood, like going from office to office, like it's all sort of light comic. It gets so boring. And like these two guys, like they're not they that stink. funny. Yeah. You know? One of them is a casting couch <laughs> pro. Kind of guy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's not funny. It's not scary you know what i would say is that it's trying to toe the line too much mm-hmm. is that like it doesn't want to push anything in any particular direction and by consequence it's just kind of there it feels very kind of pg doesn't mm-hmm. it absolutely like they're kind of pushing this towards kids even though the plot would be something that you would assume like a boner comedy has yeah or and that it would be some sort of like yeah really balls to the wall like mixture of like sex comedy and gory evil dead mm-hmm. horror movie None it's, of that, it's not that it, and like i feel like this sets a template or sets a tone in the Emmerich filmography of movies that feel like watered down versions of movies that you like. Well, he made a film right after this called Moon 44 that stars the Charisma Dynamo himself, Michael Pere. And this is a movie <laughs> that nobody likes. Like, it was an American production. And, like, looking at Letterboxd, I was like, eh, no, I'm not going to do this to myself. <laughs> like, life is too short. Even though that you look at it and it's, like, kind of alien inspired, but not really. And it's like, there's got to be something interesting. Interesting, but I couldn't find like one kind of, oh, you know what? This is actually good review out of it. And this is, I think, the kind of through line to people watching all these Emmerich films, whether it be today or watching them like nostalgically and trying to experience the feelings they had as a kid is like, oh, two and a half, three stars. Like that is almost the definition of his filmography. Well, speaking of two and a half or three stars, Universal Soldier. I like Universal Soldier. One of his better films, I would say. Yeah, although even then, this movie feels like a watered down, sort of textureless version of movies I like better, like Terminator. Yeah, or you can imagine like there's like almost some David Cronenberg ish stuff that's at play. Some kind of Robocop. You know, Mm. honestly, even like I like Albert Pune's Nemesis more than this. Like, yeah, it just never really pushes them very far, but maybe that is the Roland Emmerich's secret sauce. Come on now. (laughs) I mean, Universal Soldier is another property that will not go away. Like, they keep making movies. And it's been done better since since he did it. Since a man named John Hyams. But I can understand people watching this and going like, I like Jean-Claude Van Damme, gives Dolph Lundgren a lot to chew on in this. He's having a ball. Okay, so what's good about Universal Soldier and the plot of it basically is, you know, you've got these two, you got these Universal Soldiers. They're real kind of like Robocop types. They're real Terminator, half man, half machine types. And Jean-Claude Van Damme is the one who like goes rogue. Yeah, they're like zombies. They died, they were brought back to life. As, As mechanical soldiers. That are like radio controlled. Then John Claude Van Damme gains sentience, saves a reporter, and goes on the run. Yeah, and Dolph Lundgren is the one that's evil that's like chasing mm-hmm. him. Why it works, I think, is first of all, you got two great leads mm-hmm. who are not pushed beyond their capabilities. No, John Claude Van Damme does his robot perfect robot role thing. for yeah. him. And Dolph Lundgren gets to ham it up. 
and, and, and he's I mean, good at it. Yeah, the thing about those two guys, well, Jean Claude Van Damme in particular, like he is—he's like Buster Keaton, where he's just great. He radiates a kind of energy, just not doing anything. And I, I would love to write an essay about this, and I've talked about it before. But Jean Claude Van Damme is the king of being beaten up within mm. that '90s, you know, star action hero. He loves to just be beaten up, and that's also what kind of like lends that Buster Keaton credence. Is that he's like constantly kind of not failing, but almost going to the edge of it and there's something like he has you know this sad resting face mm. you know he feel he seems soulful and therefore he's perfectly cast like this role plays to his strength so much where because he's half robot he doesn't really have to act well in a traditional way even though that let me say now i love old john claude van damme acting yes yet. so so do i yes. to, to be clear but mm. it's like he's an offbeat kind of talent yes, right? yes, yes. especially at this like he's so like handsome and beautiful and yeah. they even make a joke about like wait where are you from why do you have an accent yeah and so because he's like half robot that like justifies the otherworldly quality that he brings to his performances but then because he's half man that you know, conveys the soulful quality that's in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the movie itself, the I had seen works. it as a teenager. Yeah, it works. The, it moves. It keep, keeps going. Like, the, the plot is just a great, like, Terminator style. Well, it's like, a road movie. Like, yeah. it's a great structure to kind of, like, lean all this stuff. And it's also within the confines of when it was made in 1992. It has all the 1992 stuff that's good. Mm-hmm. Like, practical effects, big explosions. Like, it wants to entertain the audience. So, I, I do like this movie to a degree. Mm-hmm. I would say that, like, all the Emmerich movies, it doesn't quite go far enough yeah and you you feel it doesn't have its own personality yeah that's it it doesn't have a there's a flavor that's lacking it feels like for a guy who is such a name brand filmmaker it feels kind of flavorless Mm. and 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 personality free like like all his movies do now universal soldier i believe is when he got together with dean devlin who would be his kind of creative partner his poly platt if you will up until the patriot and i would say i want to say like and his movies were better after that and i was like were they (laughs) like because we spoke of stargate I understand some people may be like, oh, I love Stargate. But I think that when I think of Stargate, I go, Man, but I like Fifth Element more, which has a lot of the same kind of yeah. Egyptian elements and things like that. And yeah, every time I revisit, I'm like, oh, it's got to be good though, right? And I'm like, nope, don't like it. Yeah, I just feel like there's something very kind of like one dimensional mm-hmm. about his style. Like it's just the same kind of image over and over again. There's no surprises in his movies. Okay, now let us move Independence to I- Day. Independence Day. Now I watched it again, arms crossed, being like, ugh. This is going to be like a Mrs. Doubtfire type situation. You know what? How would you define a Mrs. Doubtfire situation? I watched it. I loved it when I was a kid. Watch it now. And I go, what was I thinking? (laughs) Why why do I keep bringing up poor Mrs. Doubtfire? People love Mrs. Doubtfire. I know they do. The biggest complaint, the most common complaint I've ever heard from people listening to this podcast is that we were too mean to Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? Watch it again, I say. Watch it again is what I would say. And Independence Day, I had a blast with this movie. I was genuinely shocked. I wouldn't say I had a blast with it, but I would say I was like moderately entertained throughout. Now, what's interesting about this movie is for the first time ever that I watched it, I was very aware of the structure of it in Mm. the sense that like this is aping like Irwin Allen disaster movies. So a bunch of people coming together and like technically there is not like if I was a studio exec looking at the script, there is not a set piece for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally didn't care. 
was watching it, was having fun, wanted to see where everybody went. Well, like the Irwin Allen movies, you get all these like little strands, all these little sketches of American life. And I think you'll agree that none of them are particularly interesting on their own. Yeah. I guess it's just cutting back and forth between so many things. It sort of gives you the illusion that you're watching something interesting. You never spend enough time with anybody to be like, I'm tired of this person. Move to the next. It's like Randy Quaid and his family. He's drunk. That's it. He never actually becomes not drunk or learn really any lesson. That's right. But at the end, he heroically sacrifices himself and tears are streaming down the faces of everybody watching it. Yeah, it's like every scene, it feels like every scene is a sort of like shortcut to an emotion Mm. because you get Jeff Goldblum and his like ex-flame who's like chosen career. I still love you. Yeah, and it's like, Emmerich and anybody involved doesn't really have to do the work of like, act, like just the fact that you have the scene in the movie and it's so short and then it cuts to something else. It almost tricks you into thinking you felt something. Well, if you, you know? feel something from seeing it, <laughs> yeah. haven't you felt something? I mean, <laughs> well, people would argue that that's what Spielberg does all the time. Like, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I had a blast watching Independence Day. Look, it's entertaining. It's huge. Yes. Okay. It's big. You get to see little miniatures explode. Oh, I love that on this viewing. Like mm-hmm. the fact that, I mean, the special effects have aged now such that like they look good <laughs> I, I know they have weight they have texture they have mass and the fact that i can tell that they're special effects which i could not when i was seven years no, old because you just accept everything as is i was very disturbed by the amount of people that were dying in when i watched it as a kid now eh, i don't really care that's funny i mean i have the exact opposite reaction really? now yeah now when i see now when i see like all of Washington, D.C. get blown up. Mm. Part of me is like, oh, Jesus, that's but it's, a lot of it's people. It's fictional in a way that, like, it's weird because I remember when I watched 2012, his later disaster movie, that bothered me that, like, yeah. like so many people died. It was more realistic in that one, too, wasn't yes. it? Because this one has such a pulpy, like, people don't really exist outside of, hey, I mean, speaking of Mrs. Doubtfire, there is a character crossover in this movie. Harvey Firestein. Who I remember when he died in the theater, I was like, oh, no, not Harvey Firestein. I think it's so funny. <laughs> and that scene where like there's this huge explosion in what is it the New York area yeah. where we're are you like, talking are you gonna get, reach the dog jumping yeah exactly like big fireballs going all the way through every city block and you see you see Will Smith's dog heroically like jump into an alley and narrowly evade a flame and then if you just like turn the camera a little bit more you'd see thousands of people literally roasted alive screaming I, I know I know but because oh because one dog survived it's like a feel good moment yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of, you know, balancing act that he was trying to pull. You say it's easy, but like people continue to try to do this over and over again and fail okay. miserably. Okay, I guess there are some things there are some things that are easy and then there are some things that are very hard. And one thing that's hard is making you focus on the dog and not the thousands of people, people dying. that are dying. Yeah. And I will say so that I guess he has that skill that this is his lightning movie because he continued to try to go and do these kind of things and just fell flat on his face, in my opinion. I would say like Independence Day is interesting to watch now i mean there there are all the kind of like socio-political reasons it's interesting i mean the whole adam curtis reading of the movie where it's like forgive me for using these phrases like it's the 90s it's the end of history yeah it's been the end of history for goddamn 30 years at this point it's like the evil empire has been vanquished you know america is the unquestioned number one world leader and now it's a it's the Ishiro Honda at the end where they try to do the like all of America leading the way, all the nations coming together, mm-hmm. even though that they're portrayed in Iraq by British forces that are there. It's like in this movie, just cribbing from Adam Curtis, mm-hmm. but like it's the United States, unquestioned global titan, imagining its own destruction. Like what if all this, what if all this was destroyed and how would it be destroyed? And not dealing with it at all. 
Yeah. Like, like they're just moving forward. I mean, it's funny to see this movie that reimagines the United States in 1996 as like a plucky underdog again. <laughs> it's like it's like a new imperial force. The aliens come in. That's like ten to the power of 10 to the power of 10 times more powerful. And then you've got a bunker of this ragtag group of like President Bill Pullman and Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum and Judd Hirsch all sitting around being like, you know, spitball and like rebel alliance ways that they can blow up the Death Star, you know? And they do it very easily. And they get through it. The fat lady sings and the audience is like, yeah, smoking the big Arnie cigars. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting, I guess, kind of socio-politically in that sense. But also like the fact that this sort of movie... Look, 2012 Zack Snyder movies, they all deal in mass destruction of urban centers. But like it does hit different after 9-11. Yes. Like, well, you have to deal with when you talk about Zack Snyder, he is he knows. And but he has the imagery of that, which is like dust and just like, you know, well, misery. Yeah. Well, like that scene at the start of is it Batman versus Superman or what, where it's like you're seeing from Bruce Wayne. Yeah, where he's running into yeah. the destruction and, zone. And, and you're seeing like a point of view of like Superman fighting Zod in the sky. And it looks like shaky, like cell phone footage of the plane hitting the tower. Like, well, like in, he in knows Day, though it's like the alien is present to everyone they walk outside of your house and it's right there in the sky there's no real mystery to it it is just like pulpy and in your face which is why you can enjoy the movie as a whole and i remember when 9-11 happened like people would say oh this is like imagery out of a hollywood blockbuster this is like independence day come to life or something and it's just funny to see like the weird feedback loop that happens where like you know there's there's art and then there's life and then and then art feeds back into roland emmerich you mean like, yeah I yeah i think he's ever really dealt with like 9-11 2012 it doesn't have 9-11 style imagery has, like uh, literally everything is collapsing that's what i remember i from mean the 2012 has that scene where John Cusack is flying that little plane yeah, like and through, everything is, all the buildings are falling around but it's almost done like as a joke almost as if like miniatures are falling oh, like, man I remember like, whoa when it's happening I remember sitting there being like this is not fun I, that's exactly yeah. what I thought too mm-hmm. yeah because once we come face to face with these horrors we, we can't enjoy yeah. them anymore but like Godzilla's like that too where it's you know even more so frankly because yeah. it's about like it's about these this 9-11 to the power of 10 scale catastrophe in New York but it's played out, as a joke yeah and it came out three years before I mean people I'm not the first person to say this but like Godzilla is full of people being like huh the subway is gonna be even slower now or huh it's gonna be even harder to get to the Disney do store do they ever say that like Godzilla kills a bunch of people in the movie I don't think he, he's really knocking buildings over is he well, there's that one scene, don't you remember Hank Azaria, like, gets out of his cab in the rain, and then he looks, and then he sees a whole building fall down oh, behind him. I don't remember that scene at all, yeah. I definitely think Godzilla killed people. I feel That's like we what did a whole episode of Godzilla, we and I don't remember it. at all what we talked. It's bad. It's real bad. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's no kind of... Nobody has ever done a revisionist take on Godzilla. No. I challenge you listeners to do one. And I would say one of the big issues was it, it has no sense of scale, because it doesn't treat the thing seriously, because everybody working on it was like, Godzilla's dumb and also that like it doesn't really do the Irwin Allen stuff because we're stuck with goddamn Matthew Broderick the whole movie and it sucks well he's an everyman yeah sure he is we've all gone to jail for manslaughter right (laughs) I 
always threaten to watch the Patriot with my friends, and they're always like, no, I don't want to watch well, it. Well, I saw it in history class like several times. It's <laughs> so funny. They play that movie. Just, yeah, no, histor- no historical value wrong, at yeah. all. Yeah. Three hours long as well. And I remember not liking The Day After Tomorrow. Well, The Day After Tomorrow feels like the kind of last hurrah. Like that movie made, what, $140 million? Mm. It was a hit, but it felt like. Even before that, it felt like the air was kind of coming out of the Emmerich balloon a little bit. The zeitgeist had departed him. And then two years after that is Poseidon, which is a Wolfgang Peterson joint, I think quite indebted to not just the Irwin Allen movie it's based on, but also the Roland Emmerich style of blockbuster. And that was a flop. And this is we're getting into the area now where like superheroes are becoming dominant. And I'm not sure. I'm not fully sure why that is. You could do some like really facetious, like pop psychoanalytic. 9-11. That's exactly what it is. 9-11 and America needed heroes. Yeah. Iraq war. We're looking at torture, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was something about Independence Day that with its broad tapestry of characters all brought together in a classless society. (laughs) I I feel like such a hack, but, but you know, it's true. You're writing it out. It's it's true. It's true. It is true. It's a 90s movie. But Roland Emmerich, after Day After Tomorrow, he realized that himself and he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to make. So he you decided to a- unmask William Shakespeare. <laughs> well, he also, you skipped one. How can you forget 10,000 BC? Oh, uh, which I never saw. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so, I'm And never will. <laughs> you didn't see it on your stringer. Like, I guess I got to go see this movie. Yeah. I, back when I was reviewing movies for alt weeklies, I will step up and stand up to the howling mob and say, I very much enjoy White House Down. Okay. The Chan Chan Tan Tam, Jamie Foxx, the White House is invaded, but it's not Olympus Has Fallen movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's very fun. I think Chan Chan Tan Tam gets to be very- <laughs> That's uh, Channing Tatum, <laughs> folks. <laughs> My friend Matthew Kumar called him that, and I've never called him Channing Tatum since then. <laughs> gets to do the Will Smith thing and be very charismatic. What's interesting about this movie is he still uses miniatures on White House Down. <laughs> and like- you don't notice because it's within the context of other CG stuff. So at that point, it's like people are just going to assume it's CG. You got to really miniature it up, Roland. But that movie tanked. Nobody wanted to see that movie. Since then, it's been a mix of one for them's, you know, B movie action movies like Moonfall and Midway. And one for me is like his Stonewall movie. Now, Will went, hey, we're going to watch that Stonewall movie, right? And I went, no. <laughs> and, th- and you know what I said in response? I Thank said, <laughs> I said, yeah, that... Yeah, we shouldn't watch that. It's bad. It looks bad. Now, did it open at TIFF? Of course it did. Stonewall is a quintessential second Friday of the Toronto Film Festival Gala. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Stay far away. (laughs) Far, far away. Yeah. That Uh, odor emanating from Roy Thompson Hall is is (laughs) a second week gala at TIFF. What do you mean? Mr. Wright, the Max Landis written film starring Sam Rockwell's got to be good, right? Yeah, it's got to (laughs) be. So he also made Independence Day Resurgence. The movie that nobody wanted and that nobody went and saw. And that was kind of his last shot at huge blockbusters Mm -hmm. at that scale. His last shot at cultural relevance. And I mean, the fact that Independence Day Resurgence failed does speak, I think, to the fact that like there were so many nostalgic reboots and sequels and stuff that have done well, but 
people just, you know, Independence Day was a product of its time. Yeah, he was right there at the right moment, making it in the style of the 90s. The Spielberg style. Yes. And that now people don't want that because he can't bring anything else to the table. Yeah. And he was ultimately a very derivative filmmaker, you know. (laughs) Of Mr. Spielberg? Yeah. And no one else. But if you enjoy it, what difference does it make if it's derivative? Well, yeah. Are you telling me I can't enjoy the Three Stooges ripoff group Crazy Nights as much as I enjoy the Three Stooges themselves? I think you can enjoy whatever you want to enjoy. That's right. But has history forgotten him? Will he be one of those, like, you know, old school, I'm trying to think of like a Hollywood director who made... George Marshall. Yeah, George Marshall or something like that, that people just don't mention anymore? Well... I don't know. Independence Day is a movie that I think is in the time capsule of the 90s. Yes. If you want to understand understand the 90s, you should see that movie. But other than that, it's like... I think I I would like to use this episode also just as an open call of like, let's see the reappraisal. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I I couldn't see the the beauty and the poetry in in Roland Emmerich. (laughs) Yeah. And because it has to be detached from nostalgia. Yeah. So like... Basically, it would have to be somebody much younger than us watching these films and finding something in them. Find the style that's not just a 10th generation Spielberg copy. Because mm, the argument would be like, ah, they don't make movies like this anymore. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's how everybody was making movies back then, though. Okay, you know you know what? Watching some of these movies, it's like, yeah, blockbusters suck now. But then blockbusters have always sucked. <laughs> yes. And you know, people are like, ah, the movies, they last so long now. Do you know how long Independence Day is? Oh my it's like God. two hours and a half. Yeah, like, yeah. They've always been long. Well, that's it for Roland Emmerich this week. Before we get to letters, I just want to thank everybody who came out to the Fox Theater last week to see us introduce Hell's a Poppin'. Wait, don't blow your load now. Maybe we'll talk about it in the post-credit sequence of oh. experiencing with an audience. Okay. But I would like to thank as well everybody that came out because it was a blast. And I never thought I would be able to show Hell's a Pop into a theater. Oh, my God. What a dream. (laughs) So our first letter is from Adrian Pitts, and it goes, Howdy, Justin and Will. I was pleasantly surprised to hear Will mention Catherine Fuller Seeley's latest book in your most recent episode. Fuller Seeley is a professor at my university. Just to pause here, that is her book about Jack Benny. Jack Benny and the Golden Age of Radio, I think it's called. And a lot of my friends have taken her classes and had great things to say about them. Glad to hear people outside of academia are appreciating her work. Also wanted to say thanks for the hours of education and entertainment the two of you have provided me over the past few weeks. Oh, God. You went on a deep ICC binge just listening to it over and over again (laughs) i have to say though i feel like that would be tough for us because our episodes are not that long like when i like get deep into a podcast it's like two hour episodes where you're just hanging out with these guys for two hours and they're riffing we're not wasting your time here no we're not but it's because it's so structured i'd be like oh i got the theme song again but (laughs) i appreciate people going deep into it he mentions i recently went on my deepest icc binge yet while driving from texas to california to work for the summer i'm working for an independent film distributor which is my first big step into the industry. And this got me wondering if y'all have much experience or ever aspire to work in the capital F, capital I film industry. Obviously, the work you guys do as appreciators, commentators, and preservationists is extremely valuable and important and cinematic and clubby. And I'm a big fan of Justin's movies. But I remember hearing about one of you applying for a job at TIFF at one point. And I'm curious if either of y'all ever sought out life working in the movies in a more traditional capacity, be that in production, the festival circuit, or whatever else. Shout out 
to the both of you for the lovely work you do as part of ICC Verse. Best, Adrian. P.S. Neville Dean Taylor episode when? Ooh, I'd love to do an episode on those guys. Speaking of flashing the pants. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the letter writer is defining the film industry pretty broadly. Mm. I mean, from filmmaking to the festival circuit to... I think he's saying anything that's not just being a critic. Is right. Saying, basically. Right. Have you ever looked for anything like that, like in a job in an industry? I'm not sure I have, to be honest. I mean, frankly, I think of myself as a writer, first mm. and foremost, which is... Have uh, you ever wanted to write, like, novels or anything like that? Yeah, maybe one day. Okay. Yeah. You've never spoken of it, if you want to do... Because that's, like, the ultimate kind of, like, you know, all... Even, like, the people who, like, essayists and stuff like that. Like, I got that novel in me one day that's going to come out. I feel like what I would really like to do is, like, write a good biography. Mm. On who, though? I know you don't want to spoil it. We'll see. Yeah, we'll (laughs) see. And for me, of course I did work in the industry. I went to college in TV broadcasting. I never even considered for a second of studying film because I went, that's not going to get me any work. I'm not going to be able to go with a degree in film and then go and get a job in film. So I I studied TV broadcasting to get a job just in the television field, moved to Toronto to work in it, worked for about a year, worked as an assistant camera person. I also worked as an assistant editor at a production house. Hated it. Didn't like it, kind of went. Working in something like this saps the energy of doing other movie-related stuff. So I would rather not do that than have to be on these sets, which is very stressful, and you're very involved. And you're like, I'm on a show called Guess What? You're Moving Out. And I've never been more stressed in my life. And people have never yelled at me louder about doing stuff wrong. Why am I here? It's not worth it. Justin's being modest. If you folks have heard of a movie called an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, you see it's credited to Alan Smithy. But the original director was actually Justin. Yeah, that was me. And he got, he, I, I raked Hollywood over the coal. But he got into a dispute with the screenwriter Joe Esterhouse and had to have his name taken off the film. And I have worked at the Canadian Screen Awards, the Oscars of Canada, and I'm not good at those jobs, like assistant jobs. I'll be 100% honest. I worked there for a year. And like, if they were like, Justin, what's your opinion on this? Or do you want to interview this person? Or you want to do a history of that? Like while I was working there, I made a list on my own time of all the events available Canadian films and like where you can get them why are they not available and they were like oh good work thank you for doing that on your own time when we never asked you wow like that's the kind of stuff that I like to do I was given the job to look up the pronunciation of people's names that is the worst job to give me like I find it too stressful and I've been doing that kind of stuff like assistant stuff for years so I stepped away from that and I never really had any interest in the industry itself because maybe it is an inferiority complex of like, I'm never going to be able to work my way up to the big times. So I've done everything that I've done, movie related, completely independently. And you're an inspiration to us all. I, yes. mean, I mean that, you know? I mean, if I was making enough money to survive just making movies, that would be nice. And that's not happening. But, you know, I also have to make movies to do that. So <laughs> that's the other thing. But the letter writer, I wish you the best of luck. Working at a film distributor, you're going to learn stuff about like what gets distributed, what they're interested in. It'll definitely be a learning experience. For my part, I would simply like to be Will Sloan professionally. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I love my life. I wouldn't change anything about it. I'm doing a voice. I don't know who I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> Is that me? Is that- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do the Jerry Lewis, like when you're off mic, you're like, well, Justin, we need to take this very serious. My very serious Jerry voice. And our second letter is from Jerry, and he goes, hey, Justin, real, I really enjoy the show, and I was writing to ask if either of you have ever heard or watched Robert Klaus's Darker Than Amber. It's 
a pretty great neo-noir with Rod Taylor as Travis McGee, a creation of writer John D. McDonald, who works as a salvage consultant, a.k.a. a guy who's hired to find things for people as long as he gets half of whatever it is. Features a great fight between Taylor and William Smith that supposedly impressed Bruce Lee enough to hire Klaus for Enter the Dragon. This film also fits in with your previous episode of movies they won't let you see since it seems there's legal troubles have supposedly ever allowed it to be released on blu-ray it is available on youtube though maybe an episode on rod taylor in the future perhaps thanks for the great work guys keep it up well first of all i just want to say to this letter writer how dare you how dare you come into my home and embarrass me like this because i consider myself kind of a robert, a robert klaus completionist a robert klaus expert yeah. i've seen jim cotta i've seen black belt jones i've seen china o'brien i've seen that movie with joe don baker and the dogs so are you trying to get to that you haven't seen darker than amber no <laughs> i've seen golden needles you know I what I have seen Darker Than Amber. Whoa. And you know why? When Steven Soderbergh was touring Haywire, he said what inspired the fight scenes in Haywire was the fight that this guy mentioned from Darker Than Amber. Well, maybe I got to see this movie because... It's like a TV pilot with like course. one amazing fight scene. Of course, because I'm just going to say right now, as a Robert Klaus expert, I think he's a terrible director. <laughs> I think he's awful. Wait, wait, wait. But IMDb says he was almost deaf, which is why his films are so visually lush. Hey, hey, hey. I don't know. You know what? I have threatened a Robert Klaus episode. because We gonna should do it. As a Robert Klaus defender, being like, Robert Klaus, Robert Klaus. Even though, man, after that screening of Golden Needles we did for our Joe Don Baker episode, P.U. Golden Needles fucking stinks. And yeah. it, like, it's funny because I like Enter the Dragon more than you do. Yes. No thanks to Robert Klaus. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I'm going to find that gold. Hey, there's a biography of a man you can write about that doesn't have one yet. Robert Klaus. You know, th there's a reason why there were no Asian movie stars who broke through in America after Bruce Lee for like 20 years. It's because Robert Klaus kept directing their films. That's right. Robert Klaus had lead in his camera. <laughs> you know, didn't didn't know. No, no. I'm going to come and defend right. the Battle Creek Brawl. Let, let's do it. Let's As do the, it. Well, I think I said the better introduction to Jackie Chan than Rush Hour in a North American context. I mean, maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is. But <laughs> the box office numbers don't lie. They don't lie. So we will be talking about Robert Klaus at some point. Rod Taylor, though. I don't know what I would say about good old Rod. The king of kung fu, Rod <laughs> Taylor. I think he stars in the excellent Dark of the Sun, which is directed by Jack Cardiff, who was Michael Powell's cinematographer, created all these beautiful images, and just directed just hacky pieces of genre trash late in his career. But... Dark of the Sun is one of the great ones. So thank you very much for your letter. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? Well, there's a brand new 4K Blu-ray out of Jerry Lewis's The Nutty Professor. Longtime listeners will know Jerry Lewis is a favorite topic of ours here on this podcast. So we watched The Nutty Professor, commonly regarded as his best film. We may have some shocking opinions about this movie. So, hey, listen, we, you know, we love Jerry. Yeah, we love Jerry. Every episode of Jerry, I feel like we've done since the first one, where I was a little bit more like... How funny is he, Will, has been very positive. Oh, yeah. This is, I think, is the one where it's like, hmm, <laughs> we have a lot to discuss in it. Yeah. It's so, a rich text, that movie. Check it out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And next week, what are we doing, Will? I mean, the people are demanding Oh, my it. God. People are beating down our doors to do an episode about Norman Tarog. <laughs> Wait, who's Norman Tarog? Norman Tarog, well, I think 
his reputation is best summed uh, up. Academy Award nominated or winner? I believe he had had one. Okay. In the early 1930s, I think he won. He's the director of 116 films. Oh, that's a sign of quality if there ever was one. And his reputation is best summed up by the title of a biography about him. Elvis's favorite director. Look, me and Will have a biography of him burning a hole in our shelf. We're going to read it, and we're going to talk about this guy. By the way, happy to confirm, he won the 1931 Academy Award for Best Director for the film Skippy, and still holds the record as the youngest director to ever win it at age 32. So he was almost an Orson Welles-like protege <laughs> early on in his career. Uh, yeah, you could, you could say that. I mean... We're going to have to talk about at least one Elvis movie, probably Blue Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Looking at the summary of Skippy. Skippy, the mischievous son of a wealthy doctor, meets Suki in a poverty-ridden shantytown, and together they try to save Saki's pet from a cruel dog catcher. Well, we got to watch Skippy. Do we watch one of his Martin and Lewis movies? Yes, because I think it'll be a good point of comparison to the ones that we like. I remember Living It Up being kind of good. Okay, let's watch Living It Up. I think we'll probably watch a Martin and Lewis movie as well. And we were just talking about earlier, it's like, we got to get back into Wheeler and Woosley and supposedly directed a bunch of them, right? Yeah, he at least did Hold'em Jail, maybe a couple others. So I'm excited, and this will really pop up our listenership in I mean, summer blockbuster season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if we did... I love that we answer to no one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm just thinking of like, what if we did an episode on like The Flash or something like that if right we, after if we had a the boss, <laughs> If we had a boss, he'd fire us. <laughs> for doing a Norman Torrig episode. But that's why we do what we do, that's Will. Right. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Until then, am I Just a Clue? I'm Will Slough. Thanks for listening. I would like to thank some of our new patrons who include C. Il K, Drew Cohn, Craig Lewis, Peter Brannon, Cat Weasel, Maz Hava, George Sanders, Donald Patterson, Robert Brewey, Mark Nicholas Peters, Aaron Pickadesh, Riku Iso Marku, Jacob Richardson, Gregory Welda, Samuel Langstone, Joe Bossel, Hunter Haynes, Echo Joran Thornton, Greg Egbin, Fox Burden, Tree Mabry, Mark Catapano, Chaz Profal, Alex Sinisi, Terry Cree, and Matthew Gadsby. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, as mentioned earlier, just a day or two before recording this episode, we held the second of our hopefully ongoing Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classic series. It won't be ongoing unless you people in Toronto are listening. And I know there's a lot. I can see the numbers in SoundCloud. You got to show up to these screenings. You got to show up. And so far, we've been doing pretty well. We had a wonderful crowd out for Hell's a Poppin' at the Fox Theater. Folks, if you don't know what Hell's a Poppin' is, it's this 1941 or 42 comedy starring Olsen and Johnson that is quite... Sim- <laughs> My favorite comedian. You love him, Olsen Johnson. Quite simply, one of the wildest, craziest comedies ever made. Mm. Like, completely off the wall. And you hear it say that, and you're like, ah, yes, for, you know, when it was made, No, right? you have no, no idea. Like, yeah. This movie was so ahead of its time, we're still not caught up to it. Mm-hmm. Like, everything that Monty Python did, these guys did... Well, it faster. Faster, <laughs> yeah. 30 years before. <laughs> and the thing about this movie too is that like it was meant to be watched with an audience oh man and being able to do it what a delight like and i was waiting for gags to come too because i'm like oh man this gag's coming i wonder how people are gonna react i mean what's amazing is there are so many gags in hell's a poppin that like 
there were many that I'd forgotten. Yes, there's a bit with arrows. I was like, oh, yeah. That scene with arrows I'd forgotten, too. And this scene would be the highlight of mm. any other comedy. Yeah, I'm going to post it on Twitter, I think, because it's just so good. Of Basically, it's someone, they're having a normal conversation as arrows miss them by, like, inches. It's and nuts. they don't, like, move. And, like, it doesn't even look like they're on wires, either. Like, it looks like people just firing arrows at them. It, it's truly incredible. And, yeah, being, you know, showing it at the Fox Theater and, like, before the movie started, we asked how many people had seen it. No one had. No one had seen it. And yeah, to to be with a crowd of people watching that, discovering that movie was massive. We could have almost brought it up on the episode that we did two episodes ago of like movies that are hard to see because it's one that just does not get released because people don't know who owns the rights to it. That's right. Some It's based on a Broadway play and they're yep. not sure who owns the rights to that play. Because it was asked like, oh, Universal, you own this, right? Because it says Universal Picture and Universal went just recently. No, we don't own that. So we don't know who owns it. So so we played it. You yeah, know. we played it. If anyone wants money, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> but I think that's something else we were very happy to do is play a Three Stooges short. Well, uh, well because Shemp is in Hell's a Poppin'. Mm-hmm. We decided to begin with a Shemp Three a, Stooges a short. A Shemp-centric short. Who done it? Yeah, and just to watch the Three Stooges as an audience, I always was, a delight. I was just sitting there like cackling, being like, I can't I can't believe we're- The we- guy behind us was like, <laughs> this is really funny. <laughs> like, I loved it. That's all I want to hear. To, to have reached a point where we could force a captive audience to watch a Shemp Three Stooges short just makes me so I happy. I saw there were some kids in the audience, too, and I was hearing them laugh throughout the movie. Those are good parents oh, bringing yeah. your kids to a movie called Hell's a Pop, and then you're like, I don't even know what this is. Oh, and uh, yeah, anyway, uh, to everyone who came, thanks for thanks for putting your faith in us. Mm-hmm. You know? And I hope you enjoyed the movie, and I hope you will continue to spread the gospel of Hell's a Poppin' to the world, and most importantly, come to more screenings that yeah, we put on. next time we do one, we want to keep the numbers up. Yeah, yeah. I want to keep the numbers up because the Fox Theater has a 35 millimeter projector. And we want to bully them into restoring it. Yeah. Unfortunately, because they never use it, it's fallen in a bit of disrepair and that they would need to repair it. That is not worthwhile if you don't have like big audiences coming to the theater. So we would love to play 35 millimeter prints. If we can get those numbers up, you know, maybe we maybe, can convince them. Maybe. We have some prints that maybe we could play as well. So. so everyone who came out yesterday, you have to keep coming out. Especially the people who came from like Hamilton and then like bike to the theater. Yeah. We appreciate it. That is very heroic. Do it you, every you month. Gotta, yeah. gotta keep, and if possible, move to Toronto if yeah. that makes it easier. <laughs> easier yeah. yeah. <laughs>